live and we're rocking and rolling. Welcome to episode 41, live from my drum room, with the legendary one and only Don Lombardi. Um, I'm so excited about this. I've been wanting to have Don on the show for a long time, and, and only just in the last few weeks we started. I think I'd mentioned it to him once before, and of course he said, sure, whenever you want. And anyway, here we are, episode 41 on a beautiful hot day here in uh, Massachusetts, Cohasset, Mass. It's about 97 degrees outside, and um, it feels like it's over 100. So it's nice and cool down here in the basement, in the, in the, uh, in the drum room. And, uh, and Don's raring to go. We just had a nice chat. The guy is amazing. Um, yeah, this is going to be so much fun. I, I forgot, you know, only for a minute how hard a worker Don is. I mean, when I worked for Don back in the 80s, he was in the office at 7 in the morning every day. And, uh, you know, and he, he's been going since I don't know what time this morning out in the West Coast. He's, he's amazing. Amazing. So anyway, a uh, couple of quick things. I want to just bring you all up to speed because I know everyone's dying to know how many YouTube subscribers I have. And, and the answer is, as of moments ago, 910. So I am closing in on, closing in on the elusive 1,000 subscribers, which I'm going to throw a big party when that happens. And um, I'll see if I can work out a deal with Don to send everybody who subscribed a free DW drum set. Um, so, yeah, in fact, I know I can make that happen. So hang tight on that one. Uh, excited to also tell you that this Friday, June 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern time, my guest will be none other than Gavin Harrison. Uh, last week I had Jeremy Stacy. Thank you for watching, everybody that tuned in. One of the other drummers from King Crimson. And so this, uh, sorry, this coming Friday, the 11th, I will have the great Gavin Harrison another drummer with King Crimson. Somewhere down the line, I'll get Pat Mostolato and we'll have the trifecta of King Crimson drummers on the show. All right. So um, I don't have a, a lot more to say. I, I don't want to take up too much time because Don has informed me that once I go past an hour, it's going to cost me a lot of money to have him on the show. So I don't want to fool with that. I'm going to take a sip of water. Look at the time. It's good. I do want to thank you all for watching today. Um, I see we do have a few folks watching. Guys can hear us. You can hear me okay, I hope. And I see uh, Rich Farrago. Good. Okay. By the way, I'll be taking these drums out for a test drive tomorrow night for the first time. I'm excited about that. So great stuff. A tour is coming in the next two months. Yes, I saw that. They have a date in Boston in September. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be around. I hope I am. But anyway, we'll talk about that on Friday. Today, we're going to talk about drum workshop, drum channel, all things DW related. So, uh, And on that note, I'm very, very honored to introduce... My guest and my very good friend, the legendary Don Lombardi. Thank you very much, John. It's an honor to be here and talking with you. We don't get a oh. chance to chat and catch up that much. So everybody will kind of hear what happens when two good friends get together and start just shooting the breeze. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks. I'm real excited that you, you, you 
you know, you guaranteed me I would be a number 40 in your list. So I'm, I'm glad I'm number 40, right? You're, you're 41, actually. Oh, wait a minute. You said I'd be 40. I thought. <laughs> See, it's starting already. You know what I was thinking, Don? This is how, how nutty my brain works. When you hired me in the fall of 1986, you were 41. Now, I'm giving away your age. I know that. I'm sorry about that. So it's kind of ironic that you're number 41 and you were 41 when we met, when you, if that helps ease the I'm pain. I'm sure you planned that. that out probably years ago, right? <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> People might um, not know, talking about the relationship we had when you actually were working at Drum Workshop, give a little bit of a history of how that came about. Well, so I, my, my history, my recollection is I had met you um, prior I was when I was working at Simmons, I had met you at a drum clinic or something in LA when I lived out in Los Angeles. And, and I, I of course knew who you were and I was so excited to meet you. I was using the pedals at the time and, and, um, and you were just so nice and we struck up a friendship and I want to say in, in my mind on, it was about a year or so later that you contacted me to say that you were, someone had recommended me and you remembered meeting me and you, you called me and said, I'm, I'm looking to get really serious about, of uh, you know, making acoustic drums, you know, expanding beyond hardware, foot pedals and hardware and really entering the acoustic drum market in a, in a very serious way. And I was intrigued and I came up and met you came up to the Newbury park factory in those days. And, and, uh, and I tell people this story, Don, honestly, and I, I, when I, tell it i say you know i i liked you immediately i just loved your your you're so genuine and you're so sincere and honest and and you took me around the factory and showed me where you i remember you, you showing me how you made hoops and and you said this is the most important part of the drum right here and we make our own hoops and i thought okay i'm gonna learn something here anyway that's what i remember and you were an important part of our history back in those days too because we really didn't have a, a full sales force going out there and you kind of knew everybody in the industry and a great player at the same time. So uh, thank you for that too. Thank you. I, I, I remember that. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. And I remember that um, first day I came up to the factory and you took me around and there was a, there was a white Marine Pearl DW set set up and you pointed to it and you said, this was Buddy's set. You, you'd made the set for Buddy and through I'd never, I didn't know Freddie Gruber at the time, but of course I met Freddie through you. Um, I'm sorry about that, but hopefully that was okay. <laughs> didn't completely affect the rest of your life, did it? It didn't. It didn't. And, uh, <laughs> but it's funny. I think a lot of people, all, all roads to Freddie probably lead through you in some way, <clears throat> certainly for me, but uh, rest his soul. But anyway, you told me a little bit of the story about, how you had made that kit for Buddy, and he did use it, I think, right, for some period of time. Yeah, that's, that's a story unto itself there, actually. Um, <laughs> he, uh, do, do you get into the gossipy side of the music world when we do these Abs shows? Absolutely, yeah, this that's is, the best part. Don't blame me, this is all on John. So <laughs> you want to hear the whole story or just the short version of the story? As much as you want to tell, Don, as much as you'd like to say. So the quick background of the story was um, I got to meet Buddy and spend time with him in his later years. 
uh, because he'd come out here and play the Carnation Pavilion, if you remember that, at Disneyland. And yep. he'd come out once, sometimes twice a year to do that. I would always send subs to my night gig because I'd want to go see him play, obviously, for at least two or three nights out of the weeks that he was there. And then on the day off, he would come out and spend the day with either Frank DeVito at his house or come to Nick Ciroli, two longtime friends of his who were both very good friends of mine. And so they said, why don't you come over? Buddy's coming out. So on, on many occasions, year after year, it would be me and Nick Ciroli and Buddy and Frank DeVito. Sometimes Freddie would come by and hang out also, but mm -hmm. that would kind of be our once or twice a year, you know, hang with Buddy. So I get a call from Frank DeVito and he says, you know, Buddy's asked me to call around to some drum companies because at that point in time, the American companies were struggling and yeah. the Japanese companies were coming in, Tama Pearl and Yamaha. And Buddy wasn't getting the normal deal that he was used to getting from Ludwig, Slingerlin or Rogers, which means every two or three years, he would have a contract with those companies. They would pay him to play the drums and then he would use those drums for that period of time. Uh, so that wasn't happening, I guess, at that point. So he called Frank, his friend, uh, and said, would you check with some of the companies that are coming up now, you know, the new companies, the foreign companies, and see, you know, what interest they might have. So, so <laughs> should I tell the whole story? So, yeah, tell it. Come on. <laughs> so, so Frank says, uh, he had me call around. I said, buddy, what, you know, what, do you, what kind of money do you want? He says, well, just tell him I want $100,000, which was more <laughs> than he was making from the American companies by quite a bit. But he said, yeah. they got money. They can pay me for that. So anyway, time goes by. I actually give Frank the connections because I knew the people who he should talk to at those companies for on Buddy's behalf. Time goes by and Buddy's now back in town. He's coming out. We're going to Nick Ciroli's house. Frank comes out and he says, you know, Buddy's going to be here in a couple hours. We usually go to the deli and have something to eat for lunch. Uh, and he said, I've got to tell him I called the three companies, you know, the names that I had given him. None of them were interested to, to, to pay Buddy. Uh, he actually tells the story Frank does. You know, he called the owners of uh, Tama Hoshino and he explained to them, he said, you know, Buddy would like to play your drums, and but there's a business arrangement. And he said, let me. He said, let, let me talk to people here, the president. And he called Frank back. And Frank says he picked up the phone and he just said, no. He said, what do you mean no? He said, no, no. Okay. Okay. That means you're not going to pay him any money. So, 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 we're, so now we're like, I'm thinking in my mind, I don't know if I want to be around when Frank breaks his news to Buddy. Because when I was around him, he couldn't have been a nicer guy. And he was with his friends that were his, you know, you know pretty much his same age. Nick yep. was much younger, but he really loved Nick. But Frank knew him from the New York days. And of course, Freddie knew him from the New York days too. Uh, but he came out and Frank said, you know, nobody's really, you know, interested in doing that. And for them at that point, they were looking at like, who would, you know, this old big band drummer, you know, what, you know, what, what is he doing for the industry now? You know, what, how many yeah. people is he playing in front of, you know, he's, he's going and doing tours in a bus, you know, he's not playing in front of stadiums. That's what we're interested yeah. with. So yeah. So Buddy gets the news and Frank out of the blue, just, you know, it's like Buddy's like, I'm going to be going back out on the road. He had his Ludwig kit that he was playing uh, at that point in time. Uh, and Frank says, why don't you take the kids drums out? Pointing to me being the kid. The kid. So we were making <laughs> pedals at that time and we weren't literally into making drums, but uh, as, a, as part of our you know, business model, we were making drums every month but kind of selling them to the guys, the studio guys. It was their B kit. 
like all those guys in those days had their Gretsch kit. Jeff did all his recording, Bacaro on his Gretsch kit. Guys would have their Gretsch kit or a DW kit, you know, much smaller numbers uh, for the studio, even though they weren't literally endorsing us. They might have been mm -hmm. an endorsement of our pedals. Uh, so I, I, buddy's like, well, why don't I try out a kit? And that's the kit that you saw that we made for him. So mm -hmm. he says, this is on a Monday or Tuesday. He's doing a quiz show, a game show in LA. And this is on YouTube. Somebody sent me a link to it a few years ago where it was something like your fantasy was the name of the show, something like make your fantasy. And whatever it was, the guy who won the thing, his fantasy was to meet Buddy Rich and see him play. So Buddy went down. They just needed a drum set that he could play literally for a minute, a minute and a half. And I, he said, you bring it down. Let me try it out. So I, I made just a regular kit, which was a 24-inch bass drum uh, and is close to his regular size toms. Didn't have to be a specific kit because he was just playing it there for a minute. And he played it and I carted it down there and I set it up and they did the show and the guy had his fantasy. And so I'm packing it up afterwards and uh, I'm timid, you know, I was, the guys that I hung out with, with Buddy were talking to him like we are. I could never yeah. get this relaxed talking to him. It was always like <laughs> sure. he's Buddy Rich, you know, and like <laughs> I, he's very friendly to me, but you know, I, I was kind of the third wheel. So I didn't say much. He came over and said, yeah, I like him. I'll, I'll take him out on the road. I said, great. You know, when are you leaving? So he says, just get him, talk to Steve. I believe it was Steve Peck, right? His, yeah, his yeah that's Peck right. Back in those days. Said, get him to Steve yep. and, and we'll put him on the bus. And I said, when are you leaving? He says, Friday. And this is like Monday or Tuesday. I, like <laughs> this Friday? He said, yeah. I said, what would you? He said, I'd like a 26-inch bass drum and his other normal sizes uh, yeah. and white marine pearl. We don't have a 26-inch bass drum. We don't have any white marine pearl because we were just making lacquer drums at that time. John was against covering drums, which I yeah. tricked yeah. him into doing in later years. But um, <laughs> so we panic and I call the people who were making shells for us at that time, which was, you know, back east and, yeah. and said, you know, can we get a 26 inch bass drum overnighted to us? Keller products, wood products. And they said, I said, I don't care what the cost is. I need a 26. I need it overnighted to us. So they made it. They got it to us on Thursday. He needed this whole thing on Friday. Called Blameyer, who had the coverings. He was a, a gentleman that had, if you remember that name from back in the day, got the yeah. white marine pearl, talked to Bob Yeager and uh, said, we're putting the kit together for Buddy. He was like the Buddy aficionado, kind of knew exactly what we needed. Uh, and so we literally stayed up all Thursday night because we didn't get the shell until Thursday afternoon covering it the best we could without machinery and equipment, just wrapping it on with glue, drilling it by hand. Uh, and we never made a 26 inch bass drum. Wow. And my mistake was, this is you learn as you go. Uh, I knew what the Tamco shell construction was, which was a six ply shell with a six ply reinforcing hoop. Mm. And that's what we were making because we were recreating and continuing on the legacy of what Campco was having bought all the dies and machinery for making what was Campco drums. So we were continuing to make, you know, the, a Campco sounding drum. And I made his 26 inch bass drum just like that, which I'll finish the story with that. And you'll understand why that was a mistake. So, so we, we make the drum set while I'm at Nick's house and he says, I'll take the drums out. Uh, I said, what kind of a Tom mount would you like? And he said, and he wasn't being really facetious. He said, what about those kind that clip onto the hoop? Cause I use that for a long time. You know, the, the old, old style that you clip oh, yeah. it on like a cowbell clamp and you have the Tom on it. And 
I said, I don't think that would last. And he looked at me and right in the face, it did for 20 years. So I'm like, <laughs> well, maybe it would last. But so I called Bob Yeager and I said, you know, we're putting the kit together. So you want to, Bob said, no, don't do it. He's just, you know, he's not going to go. He says, I'll give you an old Ludwig Tom mount, you know, the, the rail mount that was on the Ludwig drums. Sure. Uh, yeah. And I'll get you some spurs. And so we kind of made the drum set and put it together. And, uh, and they, they took it out and they started in LA and I got a call from him months later. There was no talk of endorsement or money or paying him or, you know, we don't do that, never have. And, and it wasn't an issue. He just, a, a bit of it was, I think he liked the drums and a bit mm -hmm. of it was nobody, you know, up, up yours to everybody else. Cause nobody's yeah. going to do the normal deal that he was used to doing. So, uh, my panic was the snare drum, making a snare drum for Buddy Rich. I guess because if no matter who he was endorsing, if he didn't like their snare drum, it was out, you know. And yeah, one of his yeah. drums he played a lot was the Rogers Dynasonic, which is which DW has back as we were going to call it the Dono Sonic, but that was a little too close. But it's our <laughs> our drum that's the Zach Coppa, the way the original Dynasonic was. So, yeah. so we made him a nice, you know, uh, five and a half, I believe it was, snare drum. Uh, the way we made the camp go snare drum, love the snare drum, no problem. Love the toms, no problem. And the bass drum was a 26-inch bass drum. I get a call from Steve. They're in New York. And uh, it's like Don says, you know, buddy wants to talk to you, but I got to tell you that uh, we're having a problem with the bass drum. The last drum I would have thought would have been a problem. Yeah. And he said, yeah. He said, I, you know, and I've never seen buddy tune a drum, but he actually tried to help me with this. And we, we did whatever we could. We put one felt strip in the front. One in the back, which was normally the way they did it. We put two in the front, two in the back. We tried different combinations. We tried tuning it different ways. They'd been using it because I've got pictures of them playing it as they were heading back east. We said we just we can't get he can't get the sound he wants out of it. It was too live. It was too boomy, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, and this is early in the year, and I say no problem. They're coming here later in the year. I think around June to do the Playboy Jazz Festival at the Hollywood Bowl. I said let me remake it and we'll put something together then. So Buddy comes on the phone and he says, Buddy wants to, Buddy, you know, it just was like, he's the person that's going to tell you this. Now he's not going to pass it off to his drum tech. Yeah, Don, we're having a problem with the drums. You know, I said, well, I'll do, he said, okay, good. We'll, we'll try another drum set when, when I get into, I get out there for the, for the Playboy Jazz Festival. So, and then Steve comes back on, what do you want me to do with the kit? Where are you? I'm in New York. Where are you in New York? Well, I'm here. I said, well, you're by Casadas' drum shop. You remember that? Sure. Yeah. Joe Casadas. So, uh, yeah. So. I Modern said, well, just drop show. it off with Joe and I'll call Joe. And I'm not thinking memorabilia 50 years later, for God's sakes. I'm just thinking if I can get some money for this thing, I'm happy because, you yeah. know, we're looking for every penny we can get and not making money much in those days. So, Joe, you're going to get the kit that Buddy played on. He gets it. And I call him back a couple of days later. Thanks for getting it. Like, now what are we going to do with it? He says, I got a guy who wants to buy it. So I'm like, great, sell it. There's another drum, a drum set sale through a store, you know. So, yeah. Years later, I found out where it actually ended up. I know where it is at this point. So Buddy comes out here. Before Buddy comes back out here, he has the major heart attack. So I never really connected with him again to make another drum set. He got some commemorative drums, some classic drums from some friends, if you remember the story back in those days. I do, he, yep. He recovered from the heart attack. Instead of not playing for six months, which he was told, he, he laid off for three weeks, I think, and went back to Europe after that. I called Bob Yeager and told him the problem. And he said, Don, all of his bass drums were much thicker plies. You can't make a 26-inch bass drum out of a 
a, a six and six ply. It's going to boom like, so I didn't, that's why I just made the wrong shell construction. I believe yeah. you said they usually made 12 ply constructions. There's going to be historians out there. They're going to nail me if I'm off by a ply, but uh, <laughs> I believe most of the drum sets he made with when he played Ludwig Schlinger and Rogers were thicker than their normal, or at least not a six ply shell construction. So that's the drum set that you saw that he did play and take on the, on the uh, on the bus for a period of time and that was kind of our relationship with with buddy was that a wow. long-winded answer that no it was a great story because i i i think people watching this want to hear those kinds of details and that, that and by the way speaking of ludwig jim catalano says a big hello to you by the way great <clears throat> he's big hello to him too yeah he, he's he, watching he, was, he said always a pro really respect him he carried the ludwig torch for a long long time uh, he sure did he sure did. Have to be yep. have to be in touch with him. Yeah, Jim's Jim's good people, and I I had him on on with me a, a while back, and you know what a historian when it comes to the you know Ludwig and 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 the and the music industry, great stuff. Well, so and so Don, so what I I was going to ask you too, and I should know the answer to this. What year you mentioned when you were when you were making like drum sets just to sort of extra kits for studio guys to have at home or, uh, you know, non-artists. But when did you actually start making? I know the company started in 1972, right? That's the... Yes, 1972 was a teaching studio. So yeah. I was running 40, 50 students a week, at mainly at a store in Glendale, Dick Charles Music, which you might remember, yeah. have known about sure. when you were here back in the day. Um, yeah. And then close to my house was Bay Music and then a store that was down in South Bay one day and then Saturdays at home. And uh, having the years that I studied with Freddie, uh, I was ending up teaching older students, not, not professional older students, but students who were of driving age. Uh, mm -hmm. I did a little survey at one point, and uh, I, I found out that I had about 22 or 25 students that would drive to Santa Monica. Some actually lived in South Bay, and they were driving to Glendale to take a lesson with me. I didn't know that. So... I decided I would open my own teaching studio, if you will, as opposed to teaching at three different music stores. And I called it Drum Workshop. The idea being we would do seminars and we did them at the beginning um, where every month or every couple of months, I have friends, uh, Shelly Mann came down at one point, uh, Freddie came down and did one. And then he mm -hmm. said it was too far to drive, which was probably about <laughs> 40 minutes over the hill. So, so. <laughs> Uh, so we actually did a couple out at his house where I had people get together with him. Uh, so that was, that was the workshop name part of it, where you would take private lessons and you would get workshops for some of the best guys in town. Cause Freddie, as, as I was trying to impart what Freddie showed me, you know, putting together his teaching method to carry on with other students, um, was more on the technical side of how you play the drums, uh, what you play was something you would pick up from all the greatest drums, especially if you lived in town, you could go mm -hmm. to study with all the great drummers that are were, were playing out there and doing it. They weren't necessarily looking at teaching you the technique of what you had to do to play what they were playing. They were showing you what you were doing. And in the early days when I studied with Freddie, he was totally into just breaking down Buddy's technique, which is on my bucket list, one of the things I'm going to be putting up on Drum Channel soon, which is going through all the books that he did with me and a couple of other students at that time, where there's step by step, as, as, as much as Freddie uh, and love him and miss him dearly, uh, as much as he was somewhat totally unorganized in his personal life, mm -hmm. uh, he was very organized 
in a scientific way when it came down to looking at how you used your body to motivate and follow the balance of the stick. And he's the only person I've ever known who knew what Buddy was doing pretty much, you know. And, and yeah. so that's so that's one thing we can talk about a little bit later. But 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 basically, I I I took the students that I had started, you know. And I learned my first business lesson because I was doing a little bit of traveling then with some Vegas show bands. And the light went on. When you're teaching at a music store, they're paying the rent. And you're paying them when you use their studio, which I did. And then I'm mm-hmm. making money when the students pay me. When you have your own rent and you're not there teaching, not only do you not get the money, you also have to pay rent at the same time. So, so, so I just decided early on, you know, I better stay in town or figure out something else to do. Uh, and John Good was, you know, one of my students in the early days. This was in the early 70s. And so I had an idea to make an adjustable trap case seat, which was the first invention I had. And yeah, that was right. taking, studying with Freddie uh, and looking at Buddy Play and Louie and Ed Shaughnessy. They all had the canister seats, which are the Ludwig, Slingerland, Rogers. It's just a tube that in those days you could put your lightweight hardware in, take the top yeah. off and store stuff inside. But they were all 24 inches. Right. Not, so, not adjustable. Yep. Not adjustable. So the chance in, in playing in some show bands in Vegas, at one point I was across the street from where Buddy was playing with the band. So I would sneak over there and I knew the guy there. He would let me in and I'd just sneak up and sit behind Buddy's drum set and just for fun. Uh, <laughs> and his was obviously set at a, at a little different height than 24 inches. And the same thing with, you know, they would make them for whatever height those guys wanted because those were, yeah. you know, their main artists. So, so I, and Freddie's point was you have to be sitting really solid to balance yourself in order to, you know, use your body as part of the physical motion that you're using when you're playing. Uh, Freddie would also often say, buddy looks like he's just got a string hanging him up where he's kind of like a ballerina as he's playing. Uh, because it's not just with your fulcrum and your wrist, it's your forearm and your whole body when you watch Buddy play. Yeah. So I just thought if somebody were to make a seat like that that adjusted up and down, that could be really cool. So I got two cylinders that went inside each other. I pulled up at a stoplight and I looked over, they were doing construction on the freeway and they had this big cardboard cylinder that they were pouring cement into and it had the name Sunoco on the outside of it. So I called the company that made those cardboard tubes and said, Hey, I, do you have one that's about 14 inches? Do you have one that's a little less? Well, no, but I said, I'll take the 14 and I'll bend it a little smaller. And so anyway, I made an adjustable seat out of that. Wow. And a couple of my students thought it was a great idea. I made it for myself and I just thought that's cool. So, so there was no modern drummer. So the way you would advertise a product, if you were a garage guy making things was in the musician's union paper. And I joined the union at an early age. So I got that paper all the time. So I put a little one inch ad in there that said uh, adjustable trap case seat, $75. And sure as shit, I'm getting a check in the mail from Chicago, from New York, from Florida. I'm thinking these guys don't know me. They don't know if they're ever going to get anything. Wow. I mean, I'm, they just send me the money and I'll make you a seat, you know? So <laughs> it, it turned on the light in my later years when I had the opportunity to get into actually hardware and drums that if you make something that fills a void, that really drummers, you know, you don't have to have a name, much less a brand name. They don't yeah. even have to have a personal name. They just sent me the money for them to see it's a good idea. And I would like to do that and let me try it out. So started making not a lot of them, but I was working six nights a week, teaching 40, 50 students a day, 
I would never call myself a studio musician, but back in those days, there was so much work. You could do jingles. I would get little third calls, fourth calls to go in and do odds and ends, little, you know, uh, bootleg uh, Muzak sessions and things yeah. that were non-union. But I had a, and, and my son was born, so I was spending as much time as I could with him in the morning. So my plate was full, you know, to make one of these seats would take four or five hours. So John Good is my student. I just, you know, had no money to take lessons at one point. And so I said, I'm getting orders for two or three seats a month, but I, you know, I've got to make up for these guys. They sent me 75 bucks. So would you make some seats for me? So that's how we kind of started working together as a manufacturer. And I, one wow. of the students I was teaching was the son of the owner of the Campco Drum Company, which was a name maybe a lot of people wouldn't know out there, I guess, John, would you think, um, as a brand, except the historians? Uh uh, no, I yeah, I think probably not. It's 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 more of a West Coast kind of thing. But I think people that are drum people know about Camp Co. Because yeah, one of their big one of their only crossovers was the Beach Boys. I think they they played Camp Co. and a few a few bands back in the seventies did. Um, yeah. Back in the day when I grew up and you were a toddler, Ludwig Slingerland Rogers dominated. Ludwig was number one. I would say yeah. Slingerland was was certainly second. Rogers was was third. At certain points in time, they were a far second and third. Ludwig, you know, really dominated. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. way underneath them was Gretsch. That was kind of the small, eclectic, you know, the New York jazz drummer sound, drum set. Um, and then later in years, even smaller than Gretsch was Camco. It was really a custom, custom, almost garage operation type company. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, when rock and roll hit and obviously you know the beatles hit and we all know that story how everybody had a band in every garage ludwig sales kind of doubled all these small companies got a little bit bigger than they used to be and mm -hmm. uh, the camco company was owned by a machinery company in oakland illinois it was bought by custom electronics which was the people that remember they had the big amps that looked With like the, they the were padded yeah yep. they wanted to get into drumming they never did they bought the thing they took it down there in freight cars. They never really got it into operation, as I understood the story. But a guy out here in L.A. bought it, uh, Tom Beckman. So it was not a labor of love. It was a business venture. He was going to try and build it up a little bit, make mm -hmm. the pedals, make a few drums, and then turn around and sell it. And so I was teaching his son. And he comes in one day and says, uh, would, he knew I made the seats. He knew I didn't want to travel. And so he thought I had a little mechanical side to me. He thought I had a little business sense, zero. But uh, so I was wrong. I no. was in band when I should have been in any other school, right, uh, <laughs> in school. So I, he said, you know, I have the opportunity to become the president of Roland U.S., which was a huge opportunity for him. Says, I'm going to sell Campco, and I have a company that's interested, which is Hoshino, the Tama company in, in Japan. But I've got all this old dyes and molds and equipment that they're not interested in because they want to make everything out of the machinery and equipment they have in Japan. Would you be interested in? And he didn't even know how important the pedal was because back in those days, pro players would play the Campco pedal or the Speed King. Those were kind of the two. I mean, Rogers, yeah. Ludwig, they had you know some other styles and models of pedals in Slingerland, but kind of the the one that had the best floating action, if you will, which is what Gretsch called it, because the Gretsch pedal and the Campco pedal were identically the same. Campco yep. made the pedal for Gretsch back in those days, just put a Gretsch footboard on it. But they had kind of this floating feel, as did the Ludwig. Uh, Ludwig, as it got sold through generations, the Speed King 
between us drummers kind of became the squeak king a little bit, had a little yeah. bit of a squeak to it. But uh, so then the Campco kind of was the go-to pedal, but it was not built to withstand rock and roll, uh, you know, what was happening in the 70s. So it was kind of the, the studio jazz drummers, you know, pedal, but, but it had a market and I thought I could buy all this machinery and equipment and just make pedals and continue on with my playing career and continue teaching. And then things evolved kind of from there where we were making pedals when you came in in what year? 86. In 86. Okay. So we're just, we had, we'd been making pedals. We came out with a double pedal, yep. which is another whole early you know, 80s. That, that, yep. that was, that was, it was the first double pedal that really worked. And I, I learned a lot about business at that point about patents and how, you know, they're only good if you have the money to defend them. That's another whole subject. Not that you want to get into that right now. But I learned uh, that from you as well. I mean, just an from... interesting story. Yeah. yeah. So basically, um, we had the single pedal. We had the chain and sprocket. We made a whole bunch of improvements. I had about 10, 12 patents that were improvements to a bass drum pedal. We had the double pedal, the first one that really worked. And then we had the, if you have a double pedal, you got to have a hi-hat with two legs because the other right. leg gets in the way of the double pedal. And then we had the remote hi-hat, which had the hi-hat over on the other side, which is really popular. So Vinny, all the guys were kind of using like our DW pedal plan, a double pedal, two-legged hi-hat, and a remote hi-hat. So they'd have, and that was kind of like your standard setup for a period of years. Yeah. And we were making mainly hardware when you came on board. We had done cymbal stands. Uh, and John Good was making a few drum sets a month, I would say, and, you know, and when we really started in the 80, 80, 81, 82, pretty much through the 80s, mid 80s, we had a few stores when you came on because you were, yeah. you know, you were our connection doing sales with stores. But it was our, we were a pedal company, basically, also making hardware, dabbling in drums, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and John Good was adamant that we would only make a, a, a lacquer drum set or, you know, a satin oil <laughs> drum set because covering would kill the sound of, of a drum. So that was in his, in his mind. So, I remember. Yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, and I'll tell you how we got around that. So <laughs> I, in addition to, you know, being so excited about the relationship I had with the drummers and providing the quality of products we could for them and inventing things and coming out with new stuff. I also spent a good portion of my time with the calculator, which John didn't even own one and still doesn't today. <laughs> so like, no matter what you're doing at the end of the week, people do like to get paid, you know, yeah. and, and people you buy parts from eventually like to get paid. I wasn't real good at that, but I had, a, I was very open with them that I'll get it to you eventually. You know, I, I think you maybe have helped me too. I've often called pro drum shop and just said, look, it's the 29th of the month. The rent's due in two days. You got to take seven bass drum pedals, COD. Yeah. And I'd get all kinds of shit from Bob about it, but he would eventually say, okay, bring them down. And he would sell them during the course of the month. But yeah. numbers were important. So I knew that we were making drums uh, and it was not part of, it wasn't making us any money. It was costing us money actually, because uh, it took more time to make them than we were getting for them. But we had a few, a few drum shops out there that were interested. And we had a lot of players, you know, in the, in the background that were interested. So, so John was making, because of the relationship we had with artists with pedals, he was getting to know these guys because they'd be coming out. And they knew that he was, you know, making some drums and they liked the sound of the drums in the studio. Uh, our biggest, probably 
endorser, if you want to call it that, in the early days was the producers because they would mm -hmm. put them into a studio. Drummers would come in and play whatever drum the guy had in the studio. And right. then it would be DW. And then I get the call and say, hey, I, Jonathan Moffat, I played a set of your drums at this, this session we did the other day. They sounded really good. What, you know, like to come out and check them out. Uh, and of course, with the producers, it's the microphones that we were, we were making, you know, a drum that was a complete instrument into itself, another subject we can go into, but that was the whole idea of carrying on the tradition of the classic American drum makers of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. We kind of, we brought that back again, you know, in, in the yeah. 80s. So it was uh, exactly about the time you came in when I was deciding if there was enough out there where people would pay. We were about $2,000 for a drum set right back then. I think it was Two, yeah. which was really high. Everybody else for their highest end kits were 15, 16, 1800 bucks. I think we were like at 22. So I doing the calculations, like we're going to lose money if we don't get this amount for it. So we're going to, if we do it, we do it. If people buy it, they'll buy it. If they don't buy it, they don't buy yeah. it. We yeah. continue on with our pedal operation. So uh, the night, the two, the 20, the, the NAM show that was really kind of the, the big difference for us was when we decided and the decision was, remember my white van? Yes. Uh, so it was either like, it was falling apart. I either get on, got a new white van or we did a drum catalog. They were both about $30,000. So <laughs> call some of the guys that have been using the drums. Larry London, um, huge uh, impact for us was Danny Seraphine. Yeah. He was kind of the first, not, I wouldn't call them a rock band, but they were a very popular band selling a lot of records, you know, that, that, that drummer that crossed over coming from a major company. He was very well known with a brand and then he switched to our brand. And I yeah. call some of the other guys who were the studio guys, Larry London, uh, Keltner, uh, of course, Nick Ciroli, Colin Bailey, John Ferraro, Burley Drummond, guys who were with their touring bands or studio bands who had a kit, but weren't necessarily endorsing it um, and had other endorsements or had no endorsements and just said, I want to put this catalog together. And everybody was like, all in, sure. Yeah, I love it. Let's, let's do it. We'll promote it. So we put a catalog together, went to the show in 1990. Uh, and in the 80s, we were in Newbury Park, where you talked about, which was, we yeah. started in 1,500 square feet there, took the unit next door. Uh, we ended up with two units that were between a church. A church had three units on one side and two on there. Remember that, Calvary Chapel? I, yes. So, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I was always worried that, you know, I would go there and pray, but I was hoping they weren't praying we'd go out of business because I know they wanted our space. So, so we, we, we kind of moved a little bit out of that area and took two spaces on each side of each wing of that complex, if you remember. I remember so, you, after I came to visit you one time or several times, but one time coming years later and visiting and, and you'd expanded and, and had all this extra space. But yeah, we had Eventually about six, six 1,500. We had one, two, three, four, five 1,500 square foot units at one point when we were starting to dabble and get into drums. But again, yeah. it wasn't until we went to the NAMM show. Uh, and, uh, and then we, we shortly moved after that up here into the, uh, to the Oxnard area. But yeah. that, was the, that was the pivotal moment that give you a long answer to a short question. But basically, we got into drums kind of part-time in the, in the 80s. We went to the trade show in 1990, and our goal was to sell 15 drum sets. I called the 15 best dealers that were selling our pedals and said, we're going to have drum sets at the show. Here they are. Would you like to put them in? If each one of them would take one, I would have been happy. 
And you know this story, I think. I've told it before. Uh, so at that point, Chris, my son, is who you mentored and taught, by the way, uh, was Great in guy. sales. Because yeah. you, you, right out of high school, he was coming in and you were showing him the ropes, how to do it, and very well. Uh, he still uses those skills today, by the way. Uh, oh, and uh, so I, uh, uh, we go to the show and Chris is doing sales. And it's, we have a small booth, of course, at those days. A uh, little cardboard sign, drum workshop. Uh, and uh, we were past the point which I had gotten through where one of the first shows I went to, somebody walks up and says, oh, MP drums. I'm like, no, it's the other way around. <laughs> you look at DW upside down, it's MP. So, so people knew DW from the hardware. They knew DW drums, but you know, we weren't a mainstay in stores. So, so the story is at the end of the first day of the show, it was a three-day show, I believe, back in those years. At the yeah. end of the first day of the show, Chris, my son, getting my dry humor, you know, back at me again, just says, yeah, we got to get together with John. So I'm thinking, you know, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Eventually people will take the drum sets. Don't worry about it. I'm going to give the pep talk to everybody, you know, so <laughs> John, come on over. Chris has got something he's got to tell us. So Chris is like, yeah, he says, he says, well, we got, you know, we got bad news. I'm just thinking, don't worry about it. Eventually they'll, it's a lot of money. I know it's more than they can pay now. And he says, no, no, that's not the problem. We've sold 60 drum sets. Oh. I said, what? He says, yeah. He says, stores are coming in. They're taking the, you know, a six pack of each. He said, it's like, it's, so we'd stop taking any orders for the rest of the show. We then decided we could be in the drum business. And my naivete, which is a lesson for everybody out there, I guess, is, uh, I mean, I'd like to say I had orchestrated this whole 50-year process, but a lot of it was just, following your passion, doing what you think works, being sure it works out financially, getting great people to work with like yourself uh, as the years go by. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's looking at your history and figuring out we had a brand because we had the pedals. Yeah. In my mind, and the pedal at those days was I think 129 bucks, uh, 149 maybe we raised it to, that was like the top of the line. Um, yeah. But coming out with a $2,200 drum set is a whole different, product. I mean, for us, it was like, I might as well have been going back to the bank and borrowing all that money all over again, because I don't have enough money to make drums. Uh, I have enough money to make pedals. So right. I right. figured it would be a, a, a take another three or four years, took us five or six years to, to build up the hardware line, take us another five or six years to build up the drum. But my naivete was we had a brand. So people knew we made really good stuff. They assumed if it was a drum set with that name on it, it was going to be really good. And that's kind of the, the mystique we haven't wanted to change through all the years. So yeah, even yeah. when we decided to come out with a lower price kit, we wanted another name for it, the Pacific Drums and Percussion. So DW's mission always kind of stays exactly the same. Yeah. Do you even well, remember I... what your question was? <laughs> it doesn't matter, Don. You're, this, is, this is gold. This is gold. We should be charging people to watch this right now. I can't believe they're getting to see it for free. This is this is so huge. No, I, I told I, you it's free for the first sixty minutes. <laughs> then I charge a hundred dollars a minute. So I know you, you told me that, and we're getting close. So I'm gonna I'm gonna okay. move things along. No, but I can I, go I just, for I can go for hours. <laughs> I know you can. <laughs> you want to ask you wanna, whatever questions you have because I know you have one coming up. I do. Well, I also want to say. Um, people are loving this, by the way. There's so many great comments that you can you can see later. But I, I remember us sitting down in your office during the time that I worked for you in the very early days, and and I, I don't think you give yourself enough credit 
um, for having the vision that you had back then, because I remember you saying, I think I, I would say to you was the one maybe saying, geez, Don, you know, I mean, compared to these other companies, you know, it's going to be hard to sell these drums where everybody knows the hardware, but we're sort of an unknown commodity. I think we had at that time, Chad Wackerman, uh, Jim Keltner, as you said, um, Johnny Hernandez, and maybe one or two other endorsers before Danny Serafin came on board, before Larry London. Um, and but but you're feeling in. I remember you saying you said I I think that I think the market is open to an American company at, at that time, as you said early on, Ludwig. Uh, Gretsch was the only one that was sort of hanging on by a thread. Rogers was gone by then. Slingerland was gone by then. And we'll talk about Slingerland. And Ludwig and, and Gretsch were just, you know, that was that really tough period of time they were having where Yamaha, Pearl, and Tama were eating their lunch. And you, you, I think, very intuitively, and you had this vision of, like, you said, I think if it's got to be the right quality, it has to be good, uh, you know, well-made American drums. And it took a while, but it, it caught on. The sound yeah, of the drums. Yeah, there was no drummers. Yeah. And very important for me, you know, I'm, as I'm looking at everything we're doing with Drum Channel too, but as, as we all know, you know, talking with our small group of drummers that we're engaging with here now, uh, there's a reason why we chose drums as opposed to any other instrument. Uh, and we kind of have our own community and yeah. we know, you know, what we, we're, we're hardware oriented. You know, if you can put it here, I want to put it another inch over there. So you got to make things so it kind of works for everybody. And one of the assets I had, I thought, was playing and making a living as a drummer for 20 years. I kind of like was looking at like, what would I like? What would my friends like? What would you like? And and who would fill that void if there wasn't a quote custom? I still look at it as, as a custom company. People think mm -hmm. we're too big to be a custom company, but we buy trees. I don't know how much more custom you can get. And I was going to say, yeah. so, you're pretty custom. Yeah. Any, anyways. Uh, so I think having, you know, understanding what the, what in the business world, they would call the end user or the consumer, you know, what drummers are, are, are looking for and what the void is out there. And that you, you know, when you said they ate their lunch question comes up, why? And even without a business background to me, I could sit there with my pencil and paper and say, I know Ludwig's paying seven to eight dollars an hour in labor. I know there's drum sets coming in that looks like drum sets and sound like drum sets and have bigger hardware from offshore at labor rates that were under a dollar an hour mm -hmm. in those days in in Taiwan, and they could just underprice them by by a landslide. Yeah. So it was just yeah. like it, it was the writing was on the wall that even though it took a while to build the image of those companies up to being professional quality, it was going to happen just by result of the dollar book. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the that, other thing, and there was nobody at the high end really saying, we'll make whatever you want. I, we're expensive and we still are today. And it's just, that's what it costs us to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just going to mention too, Don, just, I thought of this when I was doing my spiel, which, um, You'll remember, but I think people watching should understand too that that you know in those days I, I remember John um, it, because even, you know like you said Chris came in when he graduated from high school <clears throat> and it's funny when I think about him and I sharing that office um, our favorite time of the day was when the women got out of there there was like a an exercise a women's exercise facility in that same uh, 
industrial park and it would be three o'clock and and chris would say oh they, they're getting out now anyway i don't know why i'm telling that story <clears throat> but no, no I, I did i had them come out that was your bonus <laughs> there was no salary bonus it was just a like three o'clock you get five minutes off and that was it yeah we just look out the window for five minutes okay back to work no but um but john in those days i remember in addition to obviously making all the drums by himself by hand would do the edges for guys that had other drum companies or endorsed other drum companies so he'd have joe blow who endorsed xyz drums come in and and either recut the edges or fix the edges and and to me it was it was not even a anywhere near a soft sell it was just like they'd come up and they'd go wow you guys have you guys are really things are really starting to happen here you know what i mean i think people would discover that it was it had gone beyond making a few drums here and there and you know at that time there was a spray booth and john might take somebody for a tour and show him some of the, this this new finish that he came up with for jim keltner and and it, it, the wheels just started turning i remember chester thompson coming up one time he had just signed with sonar drums and i'd known chester from when i worked at simmons and you know we had a, a good relationship and he had come up to buy some collar lock uh, bars because he was going to make a, a rack system. And I remember he looked around, he went like, whoa. And he played a drum kit that we had set up in the room. And he said, he said to you, I, I know I was in the room too. And he said something like, man, I wish I knew you guys were, were at this point with these drums. I, I just signed this deal. Now he's, you, you know, he's one of your guys now, I know. But I remember at the time he was going like, wow, these drums sound amazing. Like, I, I wish I knew. You know, and I think the word got out over time. And let me say, I never fired John to Christopher, by the way, everybody. He, <laughs> he, he moved out on me. He had to move to the East Coast. So that was, that was a hard one. I hated to lose you at that point. Well, I, I hated to go. And I, I've, I've told this story many times. And you were so great to allow me to continue to work for you for a period of time when I moved back East and, you know, continue having like a, a, an East Coast presence for DW, which, which was great. And I would have... If the Zildjian offer hadn't come along, I wouldn't have. Um, I, you might still be stuck with me, Don. It's it's quite possible, unless you did fire me. But I might still be there. Who knows? But and, that was um. And talking I, about drums from historically, uh, Zil, uh, Slingerland was a question that you were going to ask me about. Yes. I think. Well, uh, so yeah, for anybody who has been living under a rock. Um, and I, I say that in just pure humor. Um, Drum Workshop purchased Slingerland, I want to say about two and a half years ago. or Yeah, about that now. About that. So. Um, and there's, you know, lots of questions and, and speculation about what's going to happen. And I thought maybe you could just talk about that, whatever, whatever you can talk about right now. Yeah. Well, there's nothing that I can't talk about because it's secret. It's just... Uh, there's not a whole lot to talk about because, you know, it's it's going much slower than we had hoped it would based off of everything that's happened to everybody in the last year. Uh, working from home has its advantages, certainly, uh, and certain job descriptions can flow in easier than others. But when you're doing R&D, you kind of have to be people looking at things, holding parts, trying them, seeing if they work, seeing if they don't work. And yeah, we did that as yeah. much as we could. But, you know, the goal originally... Uh, which we're sticking to is to come out with a historical drum, kind of the Radio King version of the drum, nail it as much as we can, got the classic sound and exactly the way it was, you know, mechanically being sure everything works, of course. 
um, and uh, updating some tolerances, but basically making it a, a, a classic drum. And then my vision is to also take a look at the era that that drum came out in and educationally look at the music that was played at that time on those drums and carry that through the, the decades. So in the 50s, let's make some Slingerland-esque drums from the 50s, let's make them from the 60s, let's make them from the 70s. And interesting, Great. more than I knew, when this came out that Chris bought the, bought the brand name because it was, it was available and I'd kidded him about it for years and years <laughs> to the point to where the previous owner was never going to sell it. So it was, it was, you know, there was no question that it would never happen. He ended up being in a position where he no longer had control over that company. So it was up for sale and surprised me, Chris did with it, but uh, it just, we look at the history of drum manufacturing. We can go back and say we're part of the history since 1980. Uh, I wanted to go back, you know, another hundred years uh, and look at where the history was then. And that's a great company to tie the history in too. Um, Ludwig, of course, also, but Slingerland being a little bit smaller than Ludwig, back in the uh, 70s, I would say they had they, they were one of the better quality production drum sets that were out there in those days. Mm -hmm. um, and most, I'd almost say most, not only many, but most of the artists that came to us came from Slingerland because right. they were they were not into wanting to play necessarily the most popular drum set of the day, which was Ludwig. Uh, but they were looking for a specific sound. They were looking for some uniqueness, which Slingerland brought to the table. And then when Slingerland, you know, got in the hands of a larger corporation and they had quality issues, then we kind of came in and filled that gap when we had the opportunity to buy the Campco dyes and molds. So, right, so right. I, if we look at the Chicago records, I mean, the list goes on and on and on of all those great records that were played on a Slingerland drum set and just yeah. say, you know, here's the way we, you know, we, we continue to, you know, to, to, to open the envelope in terms of, things we can do with drums and sounds with John and all the experimenting we do with Woods. But we want to have you know, a, pay homage to the classic sound of those drums through those different decades. So first is the snare drum, which is we're a year behind on. I'm sorry, but we're, we're back into doing it now and having weekly meetings and getting the ball rolling. So we'll have that happening. I'm going to be nailed here if I give you a date, but before the end of this year, uh, I think I'm safe there uh, for sure. And then, uh, and then we'll work into work into the drum sets. Everybody's chomping at the bit to want to jump in and, and check yeah. them out. Yeah, it's it's exciting. There's a, so much interest out there. I I have to be honest. I think if any other company had done this, I don't. Well, I shouldn't say this. This this kind of it sounds a little mean spirited, but I I don't know that another company buying Slingerland would generate as much interest and enthusiasm as you guys. I think just the job that you guys have done with your partnership with Gretsch and, and of course the, the DW brand, I think has, has got a lot of people. It's what a lot of appetites for people to see what happens with Slingerland. I think there's a lot of hope and, you know, excitement about it. So. Yeah. yeah. And again, tying it into the educational part of the, uh, of the era, we'll do a whole series of drum channel lessons about what music was played on drums in that era and how they went about it and how that should affect you know, the next generation and the next generation. So is the, the design of the drum kit help with what guys play? You know, the double pedal changed what guys were playing on a drum set when they played music. Sometimes the music changed as to what drummers did on the drum set in order to play the music. So it was kind of 
through the years, it's kind of gone back and forth between uh, product changes that influence drummers to do new things, music changes that made drummers new do things. Yeah, yeah. And and talking about drum channel, I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned it. I was I was gonna get there because that's really for quite some time now what you've been spending a lot of your time. I mean, you've you've kind of handed the reins to Chris, your son, who kind of runs the drum workshop business day to day, correct? Yeah, and there's That's a whole some... business there to run. You know, now that we've you now we wanted to grow in the area of the lower price drums, which we do with PDP. Now we have the LP acquisition, which made perfect sense to us, which is, you know, how do we grow? It's got to have something to do with drums. Otherwise, yeah. you know, we have no idea what we're doing. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so we, you know, we're, we're looking at all the different, all the voids that are out there in the drumming community that we can fill with these different brands and different music styles. I keep very much involved in the R&D, which is what I'm best at. He really has a passion for the business side and continuing on the, you know, the, the message of what Drum Channel is all about and what Drum Workshop is all about. Um, mm -hmm. We're all about education. Drum Workshop's all about, you know, solving problems for drummers. It's kind of the easiest way to put it uh, and make the best possible products that we can. And there's a lot of the day-to-day -day as a company grows, as you out there, you know, some of you maybe have your own businesses too that are growing. Uh, you get to a point where you're, you're doing it and it starts to grow a little bit more and you start doing things that don't have anything to do with what you did to get there, which is product innovation, working closely with the artists, having, you know, your finger on the pulse of what, what the market, you know, in our case, what drummers need. So Chris really likes the challenge that, that you did a lot with him. Uh, you're probably a good reason for this. I didn't think about it until right now. Or well, the challenge of sales, marketing, supply chain, you know, how do we keep the ball rolling? All the things that allow the crazy inventors to come up with these wild things and see if they work <laughs> so we can have things out there for the company. Uh, still, you know, it's, it's, as a company grows, the, 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 the main jobs that it takes to get you there stay the same. There's just a lot more people doing them and a whole different challenge in terms of how you can communicate with each other and keep the ball going. So yeah, I keep yeah. very much involved on the, on the R and D side with DW, with all the brands. And I have been spending, you know, a good part of my time because there's only a few people involved in drum channel in the room here right now, I have three of the five people that are involved in drum channel. So, and before that, there was only a couple of us. So, uh, it was, it was a lot of it was on me to do a lot of the rough editing of all the videos, decide who we would have coming out. And then there's the actual product itself, the actual website. We have yeah. a new uh, person who is great at developing that and doing social media and doing marketing and doing all of our advertising for us. So really as a philanthropic venture, I've wanted it to be, I'm very proud that we've been able to document a lot of the historical drummers through the past and which we wish somebody did of the guys that we grew up listening to, you know, of sure. 30, yeah. 40, 50 years ago, but, but not only document uh, their lives, but then take a look at all the great educators and have a vault of all that information that forever drummers will be able to go back and, and look at that. Uh, and we've got the best drummers in the world, not only telling you what they did, but I'm going deeper than that. Cause they'll come out here and show you what they're doing. I'm like, how did you learn that? Well, I studied with Ed Sof. Well, wait a minute. Let's go to Ed Sof. Let's let's find yeah. out how you learned what you're doing. How did you learn that? Well, John Ramsey. Well, let's let's have John Ramsey come out and tell you what you're doing. So it's a matter of learning what Freddie said. It's how to play, what to play, and why you play it. And he would be, you know, 
he taught you in the days I studied with him, he taught you very much just how to play the drums, what to play, YouTube, drummers, drum lessons, you know, go all over the world to find out, you know, different styles and, and add to your drumming vocabulary. The unsung ingredient, as you know from your good friend Steve Gadd, is the trick of why do you play it? So yeah. you don't play yeah. it because you see somebody on YouTube doing it and you can copy what they're doing. In fact, you don't even learn how to play the drums necessarily by doing that, uh, which is in another whole subject. Um, but you learn how to do what somebody's doing, but you have to really learn how he's using his body in order to accomplish what he's doing so that you can do that and add to it or detract, detract from it and you know, make, it, make it your own. And why does it feel so good? So Drum Channel yeah. is, is yeah. you know, we're real excited about some potential ventures and joint ventures we have coming up here. Uh, in, in this year and next year, so we can get the message out to more and more students. I'm totally a proponent of private instruction, obviously teaching 40, 50 students, you know, yeah. uh, for all those 20 years myself. But uh, the mentorship that you have with the private instructor, you just, there's, there's no substitute for that. I've done drum channel best as I could to jump through the screen and get to you, uh, short of grabbing your hand and saying, do it like this. But, mm -hmm. you know, getting all the different camera angles, you can slow motion any of the videos we have on. You can choose the camera you want to watch on a lot of our lessons. If you're a beginner, just focus on the feet or focus on the right hand. So, but a lot of teachers are using it, as I had anticipated, as part of their syllabus, part of their lesson program. Take your private lesson, and here's some things you can work on uh, over the week. And you can't forget what you're supposed to do because you see somebody doing it all day yeah. long. So, we it's even great done. Even for left-handed drummers, you, John and Christopher, <laughs> we have them yeah. on Drum Channel, too. Just do it in front of a mirror, and you'll think you're the other way around. I'll figure it out. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. But that's why you have, um, oh, gosh, my good friend. There's a few of us weird lefties out there, and I know you the have. The late Joe um, Picaro, obviously, too. Of course, uh, yeah. Yeah. The great, so, late, great Joe Picaro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the best. And, um, and, but, you know, and Don, fortunate, it's, it's fortunate to have had him on Drum Channel for a long time, too. We got a lot of his content and great interviews yeah. with him and Emil Richard. There's an exact example of, and, and I totally, you know, believe that you can learn as much by hearing guys get together and talk as you can by them sitting behind the drum set showing you what they're doing, you know. The little nuances that you have to pick up comes from a lot of the conversations that you get with people. So absolutely. Uh, so I was going to say the content is unbelievable on Drum Channel. It's it, there's I I I mean there's some great other um, outlets out there, but it's just it's it's phenomenal what you have. And I was just going to just comment on someone that I think you know you, it was very near and dear to you, and and uh, I I knew fairly well myself, the late great Neil Peart, and I think just the fact that you know, Neil, as, as most people know, is a pretty reclusive guy, didn't sort of get involved in a lot of things like that. And the fact that he was so um, closely aligned or associated with Drum Channel, I think, tells you that he, he believed in what you were doing. He got he understood, you know, that message and, and the importance of education. And I think he I'm guessing anyway, that he felt it was something he was you know, he was comfortable associating himself with, which he wouldn't, might not normally do. So well, he, he and I and Terry had long conversations before it ever went live while we were building it. He came out and he was rehearsing to go on a tour. And I said, I want to put this educational site together. And I explained what I thought the mission was. 
everything that we've talked about and get the best drummers in the world to show what they're doing. And he was like, oh, I, and, and I didn't say, you know, of course, in my back of my mind, it was like, I would love if you would be part of this, you know, just as I was explaining, he said, oh, I would love to be part of that. He said, what, what, is, what is Terry doing? And I said, uh, well, Terry is giving lessons. I said, Terry should be the artist in residence. And that's, that's the name he gave Terry. He said, How so, about that? Yeah. He said, he said, no, no, I'll just come on and do, I'll do some things. I, I've got an idea of what I might want to do. And of course, he came back with uh, a great chorus that he had exactly the way he wanted to do it. And, uh, and, and pretty much was a huge advocate, you know, anything we'd want to do all the way through. And it was kind of a, an area, he didn't have a studio in his house at all. So before mm. he went out on tour, we would block out a month on Drum Channel, not tell anybody because, you know, we wanted to keep it somewhat private. But internally, we would just lock out the studio where we knew we weren't going to do anything. He would come in for a solid four weeks, nine to three, and work, warm up for the first, you know, few weeks and then go through the whole show for the next couple of weeks. Wow. I think like the guys in the band said, when they'd, when they'd get up to, to uh, Canada to rehearse, it's like he's he had already rehearsed everything they were rehearsing. They were just there to go through it, you know, themselves as a band. Uh, you could sit outside the drum channel studio and air drum, you know, the whole show by the time you went to see it, by the time he had finished. Wow. So so it was just uh it was a you know, a dearly dearly miss him as a as a friend. And uh Yeah. And, Amazing. You know, and it actually this sounds really dumb, but uh the impact of his of him passing and his impact on the music industry hit me much more after he passed away. I mean, you know somebody and you mm -hmm. know how great they are and you know the great work that they've done. But 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 as he was always say, hey, I'm a drummer. You know, I'm you know I'm just uh, and he would always want to know who's coming out. You know, it's like because people would come out and visit all the time. You know, and it's like, well, who do you have coming out next week? Well, this guy, that guy, that guy. Oh, let's have lunch with him. Let's have lunch with him. Uh, one time Burley drum and people were like, uh, Burley was like, Neil's out there. I'd love to meet him. I'm like, sure. You know, and I would go in and just sometimes open the door, say, Neil, somebody's here. Could you say hello quick? Oh yeah, of course I'll come out and do that. You know, they just get a kick out of it. But yeah. I it was just like, hey, Burley's going to be here tomorrow. Burley Drummond. And he says, Ambrosia, one of my favorite vocal bands. And they hit it <laughs> off and let's have lunch together. And maybe we'll go out to dinner, you know? So he, he was as much a fan of people as they were a fan of him. Yeah, he he. You know, I, I I didn't know him anywhere near as well as you, but I I'm, I treasure the time that we worked together while I was at Zildjian and he was still with us. And I remember going to Freddie's um, memorial, Freddie's you know celebration of life at the Sportsman's Lodge that that uh, Neil sort of emceed. And I, I don't know if you remember this, but it was the Sunday after Pasic, so I flew from Indianapolis right to L.A., got in a rental car, and came straight to the Sportsman's Lodge. Um, and I'm out there chatting with, uh, a bunch of guys, maybe John Ferraro, Ferraro or Chad Wackerman or somebody. And, and Neil comes out and he, he, he I saw him through the doors and he came out and I thought he was going to go to talk to someone else. And he came over and said hello to me. And he said, Oh, John, I'm so glad you're here. I was hoping, I was hoping you'd make it. And he remembered that I of course had known Freddie all those years. And he just took the time to come over and as busy as he was, organizing the whole day you know to just come over and say hello and and uh very you know what a gentleman yeah no question no question yeah so this is fun because i i usually do interviews where i 
have to prepare. I mean, I'm sure you prepared for hours for this interview uh, <laughs> as, as the interviewer. Being I the sat, interviewee, it's so much easier. I just like ramble it's, on. It's much easier. I sat having my, my granola cereal this morning with my notepad and wrote down about three things. And, you know, did we cover them? It. <laughs> did, did, did we cover them? We did cover them. Yeah, we okay. did. I, I, I wanted to make sure, most importantly, that we uh, just talked about our, our long friendship and how important that is to me, Don. You're just such a special guy and such a special friend. And um, thanks so much Thank for you. doing this. Yeah, and great, great job you're doing with these, with these interviews, too. And if people Thank have you. a chance, I'm doing, I do a Lombardi Live, they call it, interview. Yeah. Uh, once a week. Uh, it's on Tuesdays at 5 o'clock on Drum Channel. We've got a long list of people that we're going to be bringing on. So that'll be great, too. And, and great to hear what you're doing, too. Let me know more so I can let people know when, when you're going to be live. Great. I will. I'm going to be, um, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, I'm going to be doing another one of these this Friday with uh, Gavin Harrison from King Crimson, Porcupine Tree, you know, uh, great drummer. So I think you said uh, something at the beginning. You're going to be buying a bunch of drum sets and giving them away. Did I hear that? <laughs> you, oh, you caught that. Did I get that you right? Caught- you're yes. buying them, right? Is that right? I'm buying them, yes. But you'll give me the you'll give me the the employee discount. Exactly. So, <laughs> um, Jim Catalano, I just want to read this comment before I let you run, Don. Uh, Jim says, "Don is a visionary for our drum industry. Don is like the combination of William F. Ludwig Sr. and Jr. the Chief, all rolled into one guy. Being a player, teacher, innovator, and wise businessman is the formula for success, and that is what." Don understood and patiently implemented. He looked at the history of Ludwig and WFL and how they evolved over time. Basically, Don repeated history by following their model with an eye to the future for the DW brand, Don Lombardi, an American icon. Thank you, Jim Catalano. Thank you, Jim Catalano, for sure. We'll be in touch. That's so nice. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Especially coming coming from him with all all that he's done for the industry also. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I'm going to let you run, Don. I just want to see if I missed. I think there were some other questions, but I think you. someone asked about Anthony Cusina. Are you going to recreate the Radio King snare drum? And the answer is yes. Um, so that question was answered. Yeah. Lots of great comments. You'll see my bandmate, Neil Porter, says hello to you and me. Nice. And, uh, and, and that's it. So, Don, thank you so much for doing this today. I appreciate it. I guess I'm going to have to write you a check. Because we are over an hour, so I'll I'll give you a bonus. I'll give you an extra twelve minutes. Not that I know exactly, but twelve minutes and thirty three seconds.